Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The accusations against from Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano and his 11-page testimony have thrown the Catholic Church's stark divisions into the open. Vigano accused the Pope of covering up charges against Cardinal McCarrick. Bishops across the U.S. are taking sides. A tally at the website Crux has four bishops speaking out in favor of the Pope and six speaking out in favor of Vigano. With me is John Davis. He's the author of the Vatican Diaries. He covered the Vatican for more than 30 years, many as Rome Bureau Chief for Catholic News Service. Thanks for joining us again, John Davis. I'm happy to join you. Thanks. What um, is going on here? Does a lot of people say that this is a vendetta from someone who was behind uh, the Kim Davis incident, the Kentucky clerk who refused uh, to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, and um, that Vigano had introduced the Pope to her when he was in the U.S., and the Pope fired him, and there was a big vendetta there. And there's other people who say that if anybody's in a position to know about these accusations, it would be Vigano, and the Pope's got to answer the charges. Um, what do you think's going on? Well, you've you've hit both elements accurately. Vigano, uh, first of all, has limited credibility in the eyes of most Vatican officials because he was a very publicly disgruntled uh, Vatican employee. Uh, and nevertheless, he held high positions at the Vatican under three popes. And so what he's saying has to be taken with some level of seriousness. Uh, I think what's going on here is a combination of things. I think there is a political agenda at work. Vigano is a highly conservative prelate who has not been comfortable with Pope Francis from the beginning. And as you pointed out or referenced, he was the one who arranged the meeting with Kim Davis on Pope Francis's last day in the United States in 2015 a meeting that completely embarrassed and blindsided the Pope, and Archbishop Vigano lost his job soon afterward. So it's a combination of personal and political uh, factors here. But what cannot be ignored is that he has alleged in this 11-page letter uh, a tremendous cover-up at the highest levels of the Vatican not only by Pope Francis, but by his two predecessors, John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Uh, in particular, he's, he's called into question Pope Francis's commitment to rooting out abuse and holding church officials accountable. He has said that Pope Francis reversed the sanctions that were placed on Cardinal McCarrick by his predecessor, Pope Benedict, and essentially aided and abetted evil, covering for uh, Cardinal McCarrick for several years. So that has to be addressed. Why didn't the Pope come out and start swinging? Because he came out and said, well, you guys go do your job. I'm not going to dignify this with any remarks. And I can't, that seems to be backfiring. A lot of the bishops in the U.S. are backing Vigano. I think a lot of Catholics around the world hope the Pope uh, comes out swinging as well. And I think the Pope inevitably has to make a statement, or at least the Vatican has to deliver a more detailed response. Uh, I think Pope Francis, if he thought that he could just toss this one to journalists and say, do your jobs and everything would be cleared up, is sadly mistaken. Uh, Because this 
and this 11-page letter covers so much ground, and there are so many accusations uh, in so many different directions that it would take uh, months to, to get to the bottom unless you have the Vatican providing its own account. I think Pope Francis has to begin by responding to the main accusation, which is that Archbishop Vigano said he met with the Pope in 2013, shortly after the Pope's election, and told him that Cardinal McCarrick uh, had abused seminarians and that there's a, there was a big, thick dossier about him. And according to Vigano, the Pope simply ignored it. Uh, I think we need to know what happened during that conversation and what, in fact, this dossier said, if anything, whether there were any investigations or conclusions. Uh, I think Vigano's letter raised far more questions than it answered, but we need at least a few answers to come from the Vatican. And you've got um, columnists uh, in the New York Times and Washington Post uh, saying that, um, you know, the Pope is uh, not looking good here. He's got documents that could clear him if he, or clear this up if he wants. Uh, do they have – does the Vatican have enough documents to kind of combat this accusation? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, the Vatican documents a lot of things, but, you know, the Pope's private meeting with Archbishop Vigano was probably one-on-one and probably was not documented. I I don't know. Uh, But I I think what the Vatican does not want to do is to be forced uh, to give a a detailed line-by-line rebuttal to Cardinal Vigano's 11-page letter, because some of the accusations there are frankly so wild and and border on character assassination that I don't think the Vatican does want to feel it has to honor them by a response. And in that sense, I, I think, uh, you know, as Chicago Cardinal Blaise Supic said, this, this, this could go down a rabbit hole if you start uh, looking at every single thing this archbishop claimed. Well, what do people like uh, Cardinal Wuerl do? Cardinal Wuerl is, again, brought into the spotlight on this, and uh, people are calling for people were calling for his resignation before this, after the Pennsylvania uh, revelations. Uh, does right. this heap things, heap more on him? I don't think uh, Archbishop Vigano's letter uh, probably adds to Cardinal Wuerl's problems. I think Cardinal Wuerl does have some issues that he has to deal with in terms of his responsibility for his own actions uh, when he was in Pennsylvania. Uh, But I don't think this letter adds particularly to that. Um, It's odd. If you read the entire letter, of course, you will see that strewn throughout uh, Archbishop Vigano's uh, arguments are The kind of statements that make one wince, he talks about a gay network, a gay conspiracy, almost at every corner. He's convinced that uh, the Vatican is tapping his phone or is out to get him, and that it is some kind of homosexual conspiracy uh, that is dragging the church to ruin. Uh, And here is where he throws around accusations that are pretty wild. Uh, You know, he... He, he claims, for example, that Cardinal uh, Supic in Chicago has a pro-gay agenda. 
And uh, the Cardinal has addressed this, saying essentially that the only thing he's ever said was was quoting a study that was commissioned by U.S. bishops on the sex abuse scandal. So, uh, again, I think I think that um, that the import of this 11-page letter is going to be what did Pope Francis know, when did he know it, and can he respond in some way that puts the question to rest? What do you make of uh, the bishops uh, in the U.S. who, it seems like, more back uh, Vigano than than back the Pope? Yeah, I I think that's a misimpression. I I know why one would get that impression. It's because uh, almost from day one you had four or five bishops who very publicly said, uh, Vigano is a man you can trust. Uh, he's a man of integrity. And that seemed to be lining up really against the Pope. Uh, I think the other bishops are keeping a prudent silence. I think they support the Pope, but in the vast majority of them. And I think they expect the Vatican will take its time and answer. Uh, unfortunately, there's a vacuum period here of several days where... <laughs> where uh, if you have one bishop in a U.S. diocese who steps up and says, well, I think Bigano is a man of integrity, it is seen as taking sides against the Pope. I think it's, it's sad, actually, to see this happening in the United States. And it shows, to me, how politicized the uh, U.S. bishops have become. Uh, primarily the ones who have come out in support of Vigano's letter and calling for uh, a complete investigation are the cultural warriors, uh, the warriors who have, uh, who have fought the hardest on issues of, uh, for example, abortion, birth control, and those kinds of things in the past, and who f- have felt perhaps a little bit undermined by Pope Francis, who has gone in a somewhat different direction. I'm talking with John Thavis, who covered the Vatican for more than 30 years about the accusations against Pope Francis. In a few minutes, we're going to find out why Japan has the lowest percentage of women doctors in the developed world. Stay with us. Um, You you know, the... The culture warriors and the split in the Catholic Church is um, (laughs) – it's – it seems so acute now. And and people – if you're a parishioner, do you have to – uh, you know, if you side with the Pope, you look like you're soft on abuse. If you side with the culture warriors, you look like you're um, uh, on the side of the accusers. Right. For ordinary Catholics, it's pretty hard to sift through all of this. And that's why I think the Vatican has to come out and make a very simple, clear statement of Pope Francis's role in all of this. And it shouldn't be that difficult uh, I mean, after all, we're talking about a, 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 an alleged cover-up that goes back almost 20 years and involves three popes. Uh, keep in mind, Pope Francis is the only one of these three popes who actually disciplined Cardinal McCarrick, and he did it very decisively, very publicly, and uh, even before the cardinal is going to be put on trial for alleged abuse of a minor. So the Vatican certainly can say some things very clearly, and one of the things should be that it is, has been Pope Francis who has acted against Cardinal McCarrick. Uh, if there was indeed a cover-up by, under previous popes, uh, 
then perhaps that needs to come out. But uh, I, I think I think you're right. For the ordinary Catholic, it's very hard to look past the headlines and get into the details because it's a complicated story. Are, are you left at the end of the day with, um, even if the Pope and the Vatican come out and make some statements, uh, a, a queasy feeling about all this, that, that, that half the Church is against the leader of the Church, that uh, we've, we're a broken house? Well, yes and no. I'm concerned that, at least among U.S. bishops, there seems to be that trend of division. I don't think it's necessarily reflected among most Catholics in this country, and certainly not by most Catholics around the world. Pope Francis has tremendous support. Uh, I think polls show 80, 90 percent of the people support his views. They support his attempts at reform. They support his efforts to, uh, to limit the actions of the Vatican and the Roman Curia and to share his own authority. So I don't think in the long run uh, this, this is a, a fatal kind of problem for Pope Francis. But I do think because it is the issue of sexual abuse, he has to be extremely clear and extremely forceful in responding to this accusation. Did you have any contact with Vigano when you were covering the Vatican? You know, when I covered the Vatican, Vigano was essentially a behind-the-scenes man, so very occasional and, and not much at all. Uh, when Vigano became the papal ambassador to the United States, of course, I was back in this country for some of that time, and I, I saw him not as a journalist but from a distance. It is interesting, of course, now that among the things surfacing uh, since the letter was published— are, in fact, video clips of Archbishop Vigano honoring Cardinal McCarrick uh, and presenting him an award. Uh, Again, just one of the facts that seemed to undercut his narrative uh, that he was trying to stop McCarrick from uh, being a public person, uh, even while people at the Vatican were, were covering up for McCarrick. I mean... The facts speak for themselves. Cardinal McCarrick, uh, throughout his career, including under Pope Benedict, was a highly visible figure. He went to Rome, he celebrated Mass, he, he met with the Pope, he met with the Pope uh, Benedict and with Pope Francis and with Pope John Paul II. Uh, so, you know, in the end, I, I, I think Archbishop Vigano's own narrative breaks down somewhat uh, as more of these facts come out. John Thavis is the author of the Vatican Diaries. He covered the Vatican for more than 30 years. Many is Rome bureau chief for the Catholic News Service, and he's author more recently of the Vatican Prophecies. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, the trouble in the Catholic Church. You're very welcome.
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the status of women in Japan. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Earlier this month, the prestigious Tokyo Medical University admitted to lowering the test scores of female applicants to bar them from being admitted to the university. This has systematically been occurring for at least the past eight years. The status of women in Japan is something the Abe administration has been working on. Their intention is to create a society where all women shine, and they have programs they implement to help. But statistics on women's status in Japan continue to languish and even go down. With me is Linda Hasanuma. She's a visiting assistant professor of political science at the University of Bridgeport, and she's been writing about the status of women in Japan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Did you ever think it was like this at a place like Tokyo Medical University that somebody behind the scenes would actually go to the trouble of lowering women's scores and lowering them significantly to uh, calibrate so that they can have less than a third women applicants? It, 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 it was pretty elaborate. Reading about it is uh, kind of shocking. It seems shocking, but I think that there were suspicions because the rate of women applying to medical school was on the rise. It had increased significantly, and yet the admission rate was quite depressed and had gone down in the last several years. And I think this medical school exam scandal is really the confirmation of our worst fears that there's deliberate, intentional discrimination against women um, in an era, as you said, where women are supposed to shine, and the prime minister has advanced a womenomics agenda. So it's quite embarrassing. Do you think that um, the what was going through the university's head? Why do they do something like this? Uh, because it, now uh, Japan is a place that has a medical shortage. They need doctors, and they are <laughs> seem to be suppressing right. the pipeline. So. My theory is that it has to do with the gatekeepers and the attitudes, the deeply internalized stereotypes of about women. And so the directors of programs, chairs, all the gatekeepers in politics and industry, I think have these hold these views about women and their proper place in society. And there's this fear that they will get married uh, once they become pregnant that they will no longer be able to perform the very grueling long hours required to succeed as a doctor. And so I believe that it is internalized bias um, against women. They're not even given a chance. They're, um, that chance is being taken from them. The, the grueling long hours thing, is that, um, why is that? Is that a, it seems like a common thing in uh, Japan's work life to have grueling long hours that would, you know, make it hard on everybody. Um, after World War II, the post-war culture 
um, was centered around the father working and the woman staying at home. There was a clear division of labor. And um, there's also a culture of proving yourself and being present and putting in those extra hours. And we've had some recent stories, uh, cases of people actually dying because they were at work and overworking. So there are structural issues uh, that need to be addressed, like the long working hours, but also the, the urgent need to provide more daycare for, for women and both you know, working parents. What are the kind of things that the Abe administration has been doing? Um, since the second, um, the, since Abe came to power, he decided to promote uh, women's return to the labor force. Japan is one of is facing a major demographic crisis. It has a rapidly aging. Uh, and shrinking society and needs a lot of people in the workforce and Japan's women are among the most highly educated and literate um, among the OECD countries and so the idea was to have policies that would allow them to come back to work. There's actually a significant drop-off of women once they get married and have families and um, when they do come back to work, they're put in what we call a pink ghetto in that they're put into very marginalized part-time positions with very uh, limited opportunities for advancement. So when you look at the statistics of Japan and how many women are employed, it looks pretty good. But when you look at where they are employed, it looks pretty bad. Yes, it's actually deceptive. So the, the there has been an increase, but you do have to look at what kinds of positions they're holding. Um, and the government has proposed to hit targets of 30% to increase representation of women all across the uh, government and industries, uh, professions, um, and, and to promote more work-family balance uh, policies in the workplace, but those are mostly voluntary measures. I was looking at some of the OECD statistics of you know the developed countries and how many women doctors there are in developed countries, and Japan mm. is right at the bottom, and, and yes. Korea's pretty close, and <laughs> yes. uh, the United States isn't real far above it, but uh, you, you, the, you, the U.S. was in the 30s, and uh, Japan was at 22, I think, 22% of uh, doctors are women. Um, but other countries are doing way better. Uh, there's countries that have uh, that are way over 50%, lots of them. Even in U.S. medical schools, right. uh, there is a majority uh, woman population now. They're, the most students in U.S. medical schools are women now. Uh, so it's, it, it's kind of striking to see Japan way down there at the bottom of all this. I think there's a cultural preference for male doctors. Um, and then with all of the other cultural assumptions about women once they uh, get married and uh, become pregnant. Uh, but I also think that maybe there's this bias against women who go for advanced degrees, that um, you know, you're not as attractive as a candidate for marriage if you have even more education. There's still some very powerful and pervasive kind of conservative attitudes about women and education and advancing in their careers. What do you think is going to happen to some of the people who um, were guilty of this at the Tokyo Medical University? Mm -hmm. Because it's an interesting case because they didn't actually 
uh, there wasn't an investigation about women per se. They seem to have stumbled onto this while right. involved in another corruption right. investigation against exactly. a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were there was disciplinary action for the, the corruption. But for this, there seems to have been an apology and uh, a lot of bowing. And I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> Yes, so there has been an official apology from Tokyo Medical University. The Ministry of Education um, has launched an investigation and they want all of the medical schools to go back several years in time and to, you know, more to carefully scrutinize what happened in their admissions processes, excuse me. And um, socially, there's been quite a bit of protest online. Um, and some students had also mobilized in front of the school. So it really hit a nerve uh, among some of the younger women. And there's even been a court case filed now for compensation of those application fees. I'm talking with Linda Hasanuma. She's a visiting assistant professor of political science at the University of Bridgeport. We're talking about the status of women in Japan earlier this month. Uh, Tokyo Medical University admitted to lowering the test scores of female applicants and barring them from the university. Um, is there something the Abe administration has to to change about its approach here? Are there new things it could do um, uh, it, you know, it seems like the Abe administration, it, it, it's, its cabinet is not very woman-oriented. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they seem to be talking about something that they're not doing. It matters what kind of women you're appointing. So, uh, and it matters, you know, what kind of women you're putting into those cabinet positions. They tend to be more conservative and hold um, traditional family values. Um, and I think one thing that the government could do is perhaps uh, initiate some kind of independent board to create greater um, accountability and transparency in this admissions process um, and to change policies. And they are trying in, in some areas to pass acts and laws to promote greater awareness, education, and uh, changes in practices. Is there anywhere else for women to go than the Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP? Can they vote for somebody else if they want to see gender changes in Japan? Yes, they can, but um, the LDP has become a little bit more conservative and shifted more right under the Abe government, and we previously had a more left socialist party, the Democratic Democratic Party of Japan, but that now has really um, (laughs) dissolved, and you have other opposition parties that are more competitive. Um, But, you know, we don't have the same kind of um, key activists or those allies in those positions of power pushing legislation forward that would actually make a substantive impact in women's daily lives. What kind of things would you like to see happen? You know, um, I'm already seeing a very um, inspiring wave of um, protests and women at the local and community levels 
kind of stepping up to fill in the gaps that they see in terms of policy responses from the government. I'm really impressed and I wish more people would pay attention to the fact that even though you don't see as many women in these formal institutions of power or in the workplace, that they're very active and doing so much and contributing to their communities, their neighborhoods, and um, providing care uh, to the elderly, to children, to, you know, <laughs> they just do a lot in the volunteer sector and civil society. And it would be wonderful to see um, them make a jump from that level to the formal institutions of power. You mentioned care for the elderly, and you talked previously about the aging society. Is that part of the women's women's issue that they're they're expected to do that in japan yes. they're expected to care for the elderly and yes. the, otherwise it's shameful and you can't exactly work and do that at the same time right very powerful cultural ideas of um you know a mo- of women as mothers and being at home the first three years of a child's life, but also that once you get married, you are responsible for your in-laws. So I joke that women in Japan are like the social welfare programs uh, for the country. They provide the elder care, they provide the child care, and they are taking care of the household while the man is working these long hours. Um, And they have done so much for their families and their communities. Three years when uh, to care for the newborn child in Japan. Where did that expectation come from? Um, that's been a, a conservative traditional value that these years are really golden and important, and it's vital for women to be at home during those critical first three years. So even with the womenomics agenda, um, there you know there was this uh, understanding that there's still very important um, obligations for mothers to fulfill. What do um, how does Japan compare itself to the rest of the developed world? When you look at all these statistics, and Japan, you know, is pulling up the rear in them on these gender issues, um, how do they um, digest that? I mean, it, it seems like the rest mm-hmm. of the world is going a different direction, and they're kind of uh, stuck in in these ideas. Um. I think that the women who are ready for change have already exited. Um, uh, Leonard Chopra wrote a book about this in the 90s and 2000s about how these women who kind of reject the traditional hierarchies and expectations have already left for other countries to pursue their careers. Um, But um, it's a really powerful social, cultural um, dynamic that women also help to perpetuate that other women, you know, um, and it reinforces itself. And Japan is trying to change this perception internationally because of these international rankings that continue to show how far behind it is. And I think the womenomics agenda that Prime Minister Abe has promoted um, was designed to kind of address that and to show that Japan can lead and it has spent a significant amount of money actually trying to promote gender equality measures abroad. Um, there, it's two pronged. There's measures at home but also measures abroad, abroad to show that Japan is trying to step up and do more. Was there anything particularly effective in Abe's womenomics campaign? 
I think just making it part of his major economic reform agenda and giving it um, this kind of national attention and then international attention, because he's also hosted, um, you know, a world woman's a world assembly. I think that he's really done a lot in terms of um, publicity and creating awareness, uh, but people remain skeptical that this is primarily done to uh, manage its reputation abroad and to address the uh, labor shortages and demographic crises at home. Well, we'll keep our eye on what's going on with the status of women in Japan. Linda Hasanuma is from the University of Bridgeport, and we were talking about the situation that happened in Japan, where Tokyo Medical University admitted to lowering the test scores of female applicants to medical school. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you very much. Bye. Coming up, we'll get a preview of the free music behemoth known as the World Music Fest Chicago. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. And today we're going to get a preview of the World Music Festival Chicago. It's starting on Friday, September 7th and runs until the 23rd. And we're doing this because the lineup looks so good. We're, we're going to give you a little time to think about it and plan your agenda. So uh, it's great to see you, Catalina Maria Johnson, culture and music writer, uh, host of Bat- Beat Latino on Vocalo. Good to see you. Great to see you, Jerome. And wow, this is one of my favorite times in Chicago. I mean, really, you can't go wrong. Just anything that you pick off the schedule will be dynamite. And this group is Inof Nawa. They're Moroccan and based in New York. And they bring this incredible trance music to us, the, the Moroccan blues. And, uh, and and a really singular set of instruments, these castanets called karkaba. I've been once to a <laughs> to a Nawa ceremony. Of course in, you have. <laughs> it's, uh, it was music that was brought by uh, slaves and soldiers that were brought to Morocco. And it's very tied into rituals and it's an all-night thing it's kind of intense kind of almost like a possession with the music but uh, I'm very excited to see Indok Nawan and I think our World Music Festival is like world class in every possible way 
and they are going to be at the Humboldt Park Boathouse on Sunday, September 16th. So that sounds like uh, something to mark in your calendar. That uh, That's a beautiful one. How does something like World Music Fest Chicago come together? Because, I mean, to me, it seems like the stars have to align to really get a good one, and it's not easy. They really do. They really do. Many of these bands will be playing in other major cities, so we have to kudos to the uh, Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs because they attend industry conferences, they see the musicians, they connect up with other, say Bloomington, Indiana, has Lotus World Music Fest. And then together they make it happen because it's not just, the. in this case, they're in New York, but sometimes they're much larger ensembles, they're international. The visa issue has become huge. So to deal with like getting visas for the musicians, huge and expensive and tedious. So uh, again, kudos to our, our programming team at Cultural Affairs for for getting this to us and free. This is something that's very different from other cities, that we have this panoply of sounds that truly are unique. And like I said, we chose a few for you today, but you won't go wrong. Just, you know, point your finger and say, I can can do this, I can do that. And also, many of the bands play more than once. So if you can't see them on one day, you might be able to catch them somewhere else. And that is true of our next featured artist. Uh, tell us something about Mo Jody. Well, it's actually, that's the song. The, the oh, group I'm is sorry, Del, Del Gres. Gres. Yeah, Del Gres from Guadalupe. I saw them uh, a few years ago at one of these industry showcases, World Music Expo. And I was blown away by the kind of music that three men can put together. It was... It was so rich and so full. This is kind of like Caribbean blues, and it's uh, in Creole. It's um, a drummer, a dobro guitar. It's a special kind of guitar. And a saxophone. It sounds like the blues to me. It's coming at me with a very blues sound. Uh, well, definitely, it, it has the same roots. Um, this is, a, I mean, Guadalupe was a French colony, and this group is actually named after a, a famous uh, French Caribbean colonel, Louis Delgres, who. He was a revolutionary. Live free or die, he chose death rather than captivity. And the leader, Pascal de, uh, Pascal's great-grandmother, he talks about reading her emancipation letter from 1841. So this is, and he talks about this music being, as, as all blues are, a form of grief counseling. You get through the grief. So I'm, I'm very excited. I think their de- this is their debut. And Del Grace is one of the groups that gets two performances, as I mentioned, in September 22nd at the Concord Music Hall and right here on Navy Pier on Sunday, September 23rd. So on to something entirely different. <laughs> let's, uh, let's hear, let's just like, let me take you somewhere else. And 
And that's uh, Juana Molina. She's an Argentinian artist. She's got a bunch of albums. And I, I, it, she's not a big enough star for me. I think she, she should be a bigger... I, I think she's a pretty big star, but she should be a really big star. Right. She she actually has quite a following, and almost like a cult following. I mean, she was a comedian, a young actress, moved into this very experimental world, and I, I like to say she's a genre of her own. I mean, there's every time you hear Juana Molina's music, you say, that's Juana Molina. She's a multi-instrumentalist, um, eerie, compelling... I just love her. She can do no wrong by me. And again, she's she's created her own genre. She is the Juana Molina genre. We're talking about World Music Fest Chicago here on Global Notes on Worldview, and that's Juana Molina, who you can see Saturday, September 8th at the Promontory. That would be a lovely event. I am sure that's going to be a, a hot ticket for nothing. You get to see Juana For Molina. nothing. And again, uh, just reminding people that these are all over the city. So that's the Promontory. There's Millennium Park. There's the Cultural Center. There's uh, Old Town School of Folk Music. There's somewhere near you where you can catch some of this music. Where are we going next? Oh, wow. To one of my favorite places, Marseille. This is uh, the heart of the plains. I won't even try that in French, but, well, yes, I will. La Corte de la Plana and their music. De Marseille sa ouvette en dîle et de l'argentin qu'elle s'y demanda C'est ce palou de ses sourires et de la salive qu'elle nous amanda Tu es à quel hiver, j'accaille les lits à belle, tu es à sa belle tante Que ma tue nous gâteau, les bailles et d'eau, sa bite de la belle soldat Comme ça quitte nos viandes d'accord et les trains d'académiciens Et nous rouvrons le cabestron et les couillons tant qu'élicien Et notre pantro des mystères et basse sao que l'on marseillesse Et vous ne savez qu'elles sont dans les lieux que la clauesse dit l'oupa tuesse la facume voe, l'idée baya, sunga obi, voilà prenez sense pande, si dit la col ou raubi. Des montées chèques cantades, si pourra pas engana que on quiero la délionade, per la lisa des bananes. Si vous inez à vos frèges, si vous grèges, douce et tête à la villette, comme à vos plans, si par le plan, c'est bramas à la barrasse. That's La Corde de la Plana, and they are going to perform twice at the Promontory on September 21st and September 22nd at DePaul University. Well, <laughs> these guys are, are, they sound like they're from Marseille. It's, uh, yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's... Vocals from Marseille. Yeah, I, I, when I hear this, I think of sailors. And in fact, uh, sailors had a lot to do with uh, this music in the port of Marseille. And you can, you can understand it. I mean, they've got probably not instruments, so they've got their percussion, they've got their voices, and they're traveling, and, and you hear bits and pieces of everything that you, by the way, get in Marseille, you know, you get you get Africa, you get the East, you get this mixture of everything. This is like, you know, true early world music to me. <laughs> 
So uh, there we go, La Cor de la Plana, and they're at the Promontory and at DePaul University during World Music Fest Chicago. We're sampling a few of the groups with Catalina Maria Johnson, host of Beat Latino, and our contributor here on Global Notes, where we look at international music. Where do we go next? Wow. Well, I love these musics that are... Uh they were born in the waters, you know, so the, what we just heard was born at the Port of Marseille, so it, it comes from the seas, you know, and all those influences. This is music that was born on a river, and two countries that are now, two countries, Ecuador um, and Colombia, which are separated by this river, but weren't uh, originally, and the peoples that made this music were one, too. This is Rio Mira. <laughs> Rio Mira there, the music between uh, Ecuador and Colombia, the river. Uh, that sounded really rootsy. And um, this also is, a, is an organization, a group with great history. It's an it's a area that was uh, with escaped slaves and uh, very deep history. Indeed. And in, in fact, the, the, the peoples that are now divided by into Ecuador and Colombia, which are... Uh, you know, not now two different countries were originally one, and they were Afro. They're, uh, you know, of African origin, and uh, built these marimbas, these huge marimbas, um, uh, marimba uh, that is that are made out of a local uh, local wood, and you hear that. And the musicians, these are actually several of them are superstars from both countries, and um, it's just uh, this is a. A really, really rich sound. I'm looking forward to seeing Rio Mira here very much. Um, people that have seen Herencia de Timbiqui, they've been here uh, to Chicago, will love this also. Just rich, layered, textured um, Afro-South American music. And they're going to be at Martyrs on September 15th. That's a Saturday. And then Sunday, September 16th at the Humboldt Park Boathouse, Rio Mira. I'm sure that will go over well uh, in Chicago. That's terrific music. Right, it is. And again, that, that, that song was called Agua, which is water. These, are music that was, these were musics that were born in these interactions uh, in the waters. And and now to one of my favorite events. <laughs> this is this is the the annual Chicago Music Lovers Sleepover at the Cultural Center. <laughs> so uh, this is an amazing thing, and I'm so glad that they kick off the uh, World Music Fest with this on September 7th and 8th. And you can stay at the Cultural Center all night long. It's it's like the children's story where the way you get to sleep <laughs> at the museum all night long, and and the music that goes along with it is you know fantastic and appropriate. It is. This is uh, music from several parts of India, both north and south. So you'll get all the traditions. Sometimes there's dancers. There's yoga at the end of it. That's new as of the last. This is Raga Mala. It's been the inauguration of the World Music Festival for several years now. And it's an all night from Friday to Saturday, literally. And this is, these are ragas that were designed, in fact, designed for this uh for particular times of the dusk and the evening and the dawn. And by the way, seeing the dawn lights come through, listening to this, although this is an evening rag, I think. <laughs> you know, 
watching the largest Tiffany dome in the world light, light up. That's music that'll be featured at Ragamala, the kickoff to World Music Fest on Friday, September 7th. And what artist is that? That's uh, Devashish Bhattacharya on the slide guitar. Amazing, amazing artist. Um, You can come early. This is my technique. You come early for a couple of hours, then you go home and sleep and come back like around four so that you can see the sunrise. You've got the best strategies for this stuff, Catalina. (laughs) Figured it out. (laughs) Get some sleep and then wake up for the dawn. And though you can do like a lot of people do, bring your, literally come in your pajamas and uh, with like your blankets and, and snooze. That's that's the best way. But <laughs> All right. Get ready for World Music Fest. It starts September 7th here in Chicago. Go to the website at the Chicago uh, Cultural uh, Groups website, and they, they, it's, it's a terrific website. They've got all the groups listed. We didn't get to a million of them that you can also go see. Quantic is coming. I know. I'm a great DJ. Uh, I mean, there's music from I mean, almost anywhere that you can point to on the map. There's going to be some music. Well, it's great having you, Catalina Maria Johnson. Thanks for the preview of World Music Fest. I'm looking forward to it uh, September 7th through 23rd here in Chicago. See you under the Tiffany Dome with your pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that'll be a tough one. But maybe at the yoga in the morning. Okay. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says the militants in Syria's Idlib province are a festering abscess that needs to be liquidated. And he said that at a press conference recently. And tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the implications of an all-out assault on Idlib. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Vivian Garcia Blanco and Shazmin Hussein for production assistance. And thanks to Shelley Steffens for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.